DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be once again joined by Dr. Peter Craved, who is a professor of philosophy at Boston College and who is one of the most respected Christian authors of our time. His many best-selling books cover a vast array of topics in spirituality, theology, and philosophy. They include How to Be Holy, I Burn for Your Peace, Practical Theology, You Can Understand the Bible, Angels and Demons, Heaven, The Heart's Deepest Longing, and A Summa of the Summa. With Dr. Peter Kraft, we go inside the pages of Catholics and Protestants, What Can We Learn from Each Other, published by Ignatius Press. Dr. Crave, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Pleased to be here. Catholics and Protestants, what can we learn from each other? Uh, it's it, a fascinating book, and, and style is different than um, really, or maybe should we say it's a combination of different styles that you've done in your other works? Yes. Uh, I thought people carry away from most of the books that they read only a few points. Uh, and they don't carry away the big picture or the outline. So instead of outlining my points, I just make them one by one, like Pascal does in his famous Pensees. Let's look at the relationship between Catholics and Protestants, that they're actually, we share so much more than we're even aware of today. Yeah, if we don't see our differences in the light of our agreements, we don't see them correctly. Uh, whether Jesus really rose from the dead uh, is more important than whether Mary uh, is assumed into heaven. Both are true, but uh, let's focus on the most important things, the most important things we already agree on. I think we have have forgotten, or maybe we just were never formed in the understanding that as a Catholic, as a Protestant, we're all Christians. And that comes by virtue of our baptism, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, and when Catholics receive that incredible gift of the Eucharist and have the most intimate and complete possible relationship with Christ in this life, they have to remember that Protestants are uh, related to Christ too, although not sacramentally. But it's the same Christ. That's the important point. When we have these experiences at the Easter Vigil, for example, when people are brought into the Church, there is a particular emphasis in the liturgy that most of them, if they're not being baptized but have already been baptized, they are essentially being brought into full communion. It's not, yeah. that, it's not that they're becoming un-Protestant. They're just being brought into that full communion, aren't they? Exactly. It's exactly the same as when Jews become Christians. They don't say that they are not Jews anymore. They're fuller Jews. They're complete Jews. Uh, so I'm more evangelical now as a Catholic than I ever was as a Protestant. I didn't lose the thing. I just gained a lot. I think one of the points right off the bat that it just popped my eyes open, and I did I know this? Did I appreciate this? Is that the big fundamental movement for Luther was the issue of justification. And you point out, we agree on that now. Well, 50 years ago, nobody thought there could be agreement on that because we've been fighting for 500 years about it. Mm -hmm. But both sides sat down seriously to listen to each other and to, uh, to trace their disagreements to their different interpretations of the ultimate root of, of 
divine revelation, Christ and the Bible. Uh, and we found that the Bible uses different words to make the same point. Uh, if you mean by justification just getting to heaven, uh, and if you mean by faith just intellectual faith, then justification by faith is, is certainly not true. Mm-hmm. The devils also believe but tremble with fear. If you mean by justification becoming totally right with God, and if you mean by faith the basic act of letting Christ into your heart, uh, then you are justified by faith, but faith necessarily produces good works. It's part of a, a package deal. It's the very same force, Christ, who comes into your soul by faith and out of your soul by the work of love. You know, it, it's one of those things that it, it seems so obvious to us now and that we have all these means of communication, whether it's television, radio, what, Internet, whatever, and yet we're not proclaiming that unity as loudly as we could. Instead, we're, we're proclaiming all the division. Well, it's a lot easier. Uh, you draw lines in the sand and the lines are clear. Uh, and it's kind of fun, uh, or seems to be fun, to, to say, oh, I'm right and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we change our attitude, if we tilt our head a little bit to one side, and if we stop looking at our own scripts and look at the, uh, the baton of the conductor of the Christian orchestra, who is Jesus himself, uh, we'll eventually reach unity because that's his will. And if we want his will, we'll get it. Yeah, that is the key, isn't it? It's not because we ought to reunify, become together once again. It's that we must. It's a command that we do. Yeah, just just think how, how Jesus and Mary both look at the, the situation where uh, Christians are divided. Uh, how does a parent feel when their kids fight? And, and hate each other instead of loving each other. Terrible. That's the worst thing in the world. So if we truly love our Lord uh, and our Lady, uh, we're going to satisfy their their brotherly and fatherly and motherly desire for us. It's one of those sad stories in, in some ways, isn't it, Dr. Craved? It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. After a while, you just forget yeah. why you're feuding. Well, in the early days of Christianity, the world uh, was converted by uh, by how we love one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, already in the New Testament, uh, Pagan said, look how these Christians love one another. Uh, insofar as the world looks at us and says, look how they hate each other, we're not going to convert the world. Do you think it is, Dr. Crave, because th- that that key that that you uh, lift up as, as essential is is to listen? And sometimes I think maybe, at least from a Catholic vantage point, maybe from a, a Protestant's vantage point, we're afraid if we listen... We may hear something, and we're not on sure ground ourselves. Well, uh, in Jesus' public ministry, he met hundreds of people, and those that really listened to him uh, usually became his disciples, and those that didn't, didn't. Uh, listening can be dangerous. It, it, uh, it can change your, your life. Mm. But unless you listen, you don't understand. And unless you don't understand, you don't really have the right to judge. God gave us one mouth and two ears so that we could listen twice as much as we speak. We usually do the opposite. We want to have the last word. Ultimately, in that listening, you're listening for uh, Jesus Christ, aren't you? Yes, yes. And he speaks in many different ways, indirectly. He could speak directly and miraculously and clearly with, with writing in the sky so that everybody could see him. But, uh, but he doesn't. He speaks through his flawed people. So we have to listen that way. 
Boy, you know, as I said, it's difficult to listen these days because some of the things that we're hearing, the discourse is so harsh. Even, you know, for example, in the Catholic community, it's almost, it's everyone's trying to remain the last man standing. Well, that's, I think, one of the reasons why God sent us uh, uh, Francis as a pope. He's very good at listening and mercy and, and being non-judgmental. That's not the only thing, but it's an essential thing, and we all need to do it. It's not a, uh, an option. It's not a style. Well, when we do listen, it's usually not a dogmatic arguments. Usually it's, it's a lack of understanding of what each other believes and thinks, isn't it? Yes, and it's surprisingly easy to misunderstand. We're, we're very good at misconstruing things, and we often don't realize that. This is one of the reasons why Socrates is my favorite philosopher. He, he starts by uh, asking you, do you really know what you're talking about? And everybody says, well, of course I do. And upon examination, it turns out that we half of the time don't really know what we're talking about. We're talking to our hat. Uh, and there's the danger. I mean, we are really living in a soundbite culture, aren't we? But we don't have to. We're, we're human, and human nature does not change. And the, uh, the instruments that we can pervert, we can also use. Uh, and modern media can be a, a marvelous uh, uh, instrument for understanding and spreading the gospel. And it can also be a, a, a great instrument for misunderstanding and perverting it. You know, it's so interesting that you brought up Socrates, because one of my favorite lines in, the, in your book, Catholics and Protestants, what can we learn from each other? You talk about ecumenism and that our first teacher in that is, of course, is Jesus Christ, but our second should be Socrates. Yeah, because the first lesson he always wants to teach you, which is lesson one, is that you don't know nearly as much as you think you know. Mm. Uh, my favorite sermon of all time is a four-word sermon that God himself preached to St. Catherine, a medieval mystic, uh, when he said, I'm going to summarize all of divine revelation in four words. Uh, there's only two things that I'm trying to get across to you. I'm God, you're not. (laughs) We keep forgetting that second thing. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. It's almost we put him in the peripheral, don't we? Oh, we're crazy. We're we're insane. But God dearly loves his severely retarded children. Well, if we do begin to listen, it's the voice that we have to hear and it i think he told that same mystic saint catherine that if you're not hearing a voice that speaks virtue watch out i'm paraphrasing of course (laughs) yeah well ignatius of loyola the founder of the jesuits gave some very good psychological advice for discernment of spirits uh he taught that we should look for for god everywhere try to see him everywhere and 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 to hear him everywhere and when you hear rancor and hatred and and dissent that's not his spirit and when you hear peace uh and, and truth and and calm that's that's his spirit i think that's so key and especially at this moment where we're about to embark on a 500th anniversary of this protestant is has become known the protestant reformation the fact that the number one issue, the primary issue for Luther was the justification issue, and that's been cleared up, essentially. And that's a miracle. Yeah. That, that's the work of God. We, we have better hindsight than foresight. Now that we look back on the issue, we say, how could we have so misunderstood each other's teachings for 500 years? So maybe 100 years from now, they'll look back on, on the 
agreement about the relation between the Church and the Bible, which also divides us, mm-hmm. and say, how, how could they have misunderstood each other so badly? Now we clearly see that, uh, that we can agree, but we don't see that yet. We have to work our way towards it, and it's a lot of work. Ultimately, will happen in the very, very end. It has to, because when Christ comes back, he's not going to marry a harem. He's going to marry a single bride. Mm. Again, that, that relationship between us, you know, often we hear, unfortunately, and even in Catholic circles, are you a Christian or are you a Catholic? <laughs> even Catholics sometimes are a little confused about who we are. That's a perspective. We certainly need it. Uh, let me tell a, a joke that I put in the middle of the book. A man's walking down the streets of uh, uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland, during the Troubles, and it's nighttime, and no one else is around. Suddenly, uh, there are strong arms around him, and a knife is held to his throat, and he hears a voice from behind him, Are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? And the man thinks, oh boy, i got a 50% chance of saving my life unless I'm really clever. So he says, I'm an atheist. The knife doesn't move, the voice says. Ah, but are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist? <laughs> yeah. There are, there are places where the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic are more important than the difference between an atheist and a believer. Ah, now see, the, now we're dealing about culture. This is where it yep. all kind of, it all blends together in a very real way, doesn't it? Yeah. Culture is our human response to what God has given us. The, the music we make out of divinely gifted materials. And it's always a blend. There's always good stuff and bad stuff. Mm. Just as individual souls have virtues and vices, so do cultures. So we need discernment. You know the only the only culture that is is infallible is, is divine revelation, God's culture. No human culture is. Well it's something to strive for, isn't it? We may not attain it in this moment, but we strive for it, don't we? Yes, and we're promised by Christ himself that, that those who seek will find. And obviously he's not talking about a fortune or a long life or, or avoidance of suffering. He's talking about himself and his will. And if that's part of his will, then insofar as we seek, he will find it. And I think that is the main thing that has changed in 50 years. Uh, when I was a kid, people didn't want reunion. They thought each other were so dead wrong that most Protestants thought Catholics were going to hell and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Now very few people believe that anymore. They they want reunion without compromise. They don't, they don't see how that's possible. And if that's a holy and good thing to want, then eventually in his own time and in his own way, God will give us that. You know, I, I go back to that point about our understanding about baptism. I, I think we have gotten better, at least in the Catholic Church, in helping people through a, a, an apologetic to understand the Eucharist or be able to at least express it out of the scriptures. You know, I'm referring back to the, the John chapter 6 section, and many Catholics are able to enter into a conversation about that. But when it comes to baptism, it's almost as though we need a, a, a baptismal apologetic. Yeah, and there's been enormous progress, both in general and on the particular issue of the sacraments in Catholic apologetics. The New Catechism of the Catholic Church, for instance, is is a marvelous instrument. Every Protestant that I know who has read that has been surprised and pleased by how scriptural it is. And they'll find that in our liturgy as well. Yes, indeed, if they listen. Yeah, if they listen. 
Dr. Crave, one of the chapters that I was so glad that you said it out loud about the new evangelization, I think that when it first came up, when it really captured the imagination, particularly of Catholics, it, everybody started talking about all of the media. They, they looked at it as technologically, we need to get, use the new evangelization, and we kind of missed the mark a little bit on that. Yeah, the main thing is not the new means, but the new audience. Uh, we have to evangelize ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. What makes the new evangelization new is that the gospel, which always goes into the most desperately needed places on the earth, now has to go into what used to be called Christendom and is now called Western civilization. That, that's the new darkest Africa. Yeah, that evangelization in a very real way is going back and reforming those who have been, just even in the last 25, or let's say 50, 60 years. Reforming is a good word, because that's the word Luther used. He didn't want to start a new church. He wanted to reform the old one back to its its inner essence. So I think if Luther were alive today, he'd be a Catholic. Mm. He would say, oh, that's the church that's, that's reforming itself. It becomes more complicated because of the difference in so many of the denominations that have splintered off of, from even that initial Reformation. And I, I think of the teachings of Calvin, or, or even in the Anglican Church, which seems so close, and yet we seem to be so far. Well, the Church used to be one, like the trunk of a tree, and then it branched out into various denominations more and more. Uh, and sometime in the last few generations, uh, we said, hey, let's, let's rediscover our origins. Let's, let's go backward. Uh, instead of developing more differences and more denominations and more arguments, uh, let's look at our roots. Uh, and when we did that, we discovered the basic principles of unity. It, it is remarkable that Protestantism has produced over 20,000 different denominations. The, the great schism between East and West never did that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism are the same priests, the same sacraments, their excommunications of each other were lifted. Uh, there's very little that divides us. So that, that's certainly a divine miracle in itself. And I think you train us, too, throughout the book to, you know, watch out, look at what the words are, and then find out what they mean. And so, you know, for example, what it is to be Catholic, that it means to be universal, Jesus founded a single church, and it was a single church for over a thousand years. That's simply a historical fact. Right, and even in that context, I mean, the fact that much of what our teaching that we hold within that church encompasses so much of what various Protestant churches will teach, that it's not that, that what they have is something different, but in some ways it's part of what we already hold to be true. Yeah. Uh, What Catholics need in order to prepare for reunion is a purification of what they already have. What Protestants need is to take a good look at what Catholics are saying and they're not saying and ask, is that part of the, the, the positive faith that Christ gave to the whole Church? So we have to clean up our own act and they have to ask whether their act is, is too small. Mm. Maybe maybe we're too big. Maybe we've got too much garbage. 
uh, but they're certainly too small. I mean, you, you can't have reunion by compromise. You can't say, okay, in order to please Protestants, we'll not insist on believing in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. So we've got to reconfigure and re-express our own doctrine more clearly so that it's more comprehensive, uh, not compromised, but more clear and, and winsome and winning uh, to everybody. Protestant, Jew, Hindu, atheist, anyone. Is that the, the the sheer beauty of what St. John Paul the Great started when he called for a catechism for the, the church and how Cardinal Ratzinger, then who would become Pope Benedict XVI, how he fashioned it? Yep. Uh, looking at the minds behind the catechism and the things they've written, especially John Paul II, he's a brilliant philosopher, but very dense, very difficult. The Catechism is a marvel of simplicity. Anybody can understand it. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful instrument of, of reunification. And it's the first official universal catechism in 500 years since the Catechism of the Council of Trent, right after the Protestant Reformation. And I think that's not just a coincidence. I think it is the preparation for a new reunification. John Paul II himself said that the first thousand years of Christian history were the millennium of unity, and the next 10,000, the next thousand years, starting with the Great Schism in 1054, and then the Protestant Reformation in 1517, the next thousand years were the millennium of Christian disunity, and the third millennium has to be the millennium of Christian reunity. Mm. You know, what's so lovely about it is that not only does it articulate a teaching, it points us to so many others in its its incredible footnotes and you know uh, citations particularly the that of the saints and early fathers of the church and through them many protestant leaders teachers by reading those fathers of the church have found or should i say they they've listened and found what brings us together yeah uh the history of the church is amazingly consistent it grows like a tree, and it gets more full and, and complex and, and, and complete. But it's the same thing. Uh, when I was a, a, a Protestant reading the Church Fathers to try to prove to myself that they were all Protestants, and therefore I was in the right Church, <laughs> what struck me the most was the agreement for 1,500 years. Uh, about the authority of the Church and the primacy of the Bishop of Rome and the real presence in the Eucharist and the rightness of prayers to saints. Uh, until the Reformation, there were not fundamental controversies about those issues. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, wait a minute, did the Holy Spirit fall asleep for 1,500 years and then suddenly wake up with Luther and Calvin? That can't be. Mm. So the more you study history, the more Catholic you become. It will ultimately point us to, of course, to Jesus Christ. But it, again, not the Jesus Christ of history, but the, the real, very personal one that wants and desires that relationship, that died for that relationship with us. Well, that's the other great thing about the Catechism. It's Christocentric. It shows that Christ is not just one among many parts of our faith, but the center of the whole thing. That relationship, it's key, and that's something that our Protestant brothers and sisters have always looked at us and said, why don't you realize that is available to you? And we just didn't know how to express 
that relationship. Well, that's the main thing we need to do to clean up our act so that when Protestants come home, they recognize it as home. Uh, I like the image of the fire in the fireplace. We've got a marvelous big fireplace, uh, but the fire looks kind of small. And the Protestants concentrate on the fire, and they've got a big fireplace, a uh, big fire, but uh, suspicious of the fireplace. Uh, you need a big fireplace for the sake of the big fire, but you also need to put a big fire in that fireplace. Why is it, Dr. Craves, that when we are in times that seem peaceful, or relatively peaceful, at least in the United States, it, and we're prosperous, especially compared to the rest of the world, that we, the divisions become so marked and we become so hostile to each other, and yet when there are times of persecution and suffering, all of a sudden we reunite. Why can't we always be united? Because we're fools mm-hmm. and we're spoiled. And when things go easy, we get uh, uh, decadent and corrupt, which is why God allows persecution and suffering. Uh, it makes for saints and martyrs. Uh, the seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Church. Uh, and the opposite is true, too. When we don't have many martyrs, you don't need much courage, and you don't need that much virtue to survive. It's much too easy in, in our comfortable bubble over here. Isn't it interesting in news accounts of the horrendous persecutions that are uh, inflicting Christians in the Middle East, you're not hearing Catholics, and you're not hearing Lutheran, or you're not hearing non-denom, you're hearing the term Christian persecution. Yeah, and massive conversions are happening for the first time in history in, in some of those countries where the persecutions are the worst, especially in fundamentalist Muslim countries where you can lose your life for being a Christian. Uh, Mm -hmm. Miracles and visions are happening. It's very difficult to convert Muslims throughout history, partly because of the intense social pressure that they exert. But but it's happening now. Uh, And most Christians don't even realize that the most watched miracle in history, the the miracle that more people have seen than any other, uh, happened in the 1990s in Cairo, Egypt, a suburb named Zaytun. Uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary stood on the dome of a Byzantine cathedral for seven days in a row, making peace signs between Muslims and Christians. Two million people saw that. Mm. Most of the Muslims, but also a lot of Christians. That's the most watched miracle in history. So I think God is, is, is doing something, uh, not just to unite Christians, but also to... Uh, to reconcile Christians with non-Christians in many ways. Well, Dr. Kraft, I wish we had more time. Uh, Any final thoughts? Uh, Just pray that thy will be done with the whole of your heart, and uh, you'll get something, guaranteed. Well, Dr. Peter Kraft, thank you so very much. You're very welcome. God bless you. With Dr. Peter Kraft, we've gone inside the pages of Catholics and Protestants. What can we learn from each other? To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore to hear and or to download this conversation or to access hundreds of other spiritual formation programs. Visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, Insights from Today's Most Compelling Authors.